Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. On this episode of The Drip, we've got special guests Liban Abakor and Jacka Blayamar from the Foundation for Black Communities. You may have heard about them due to their groundbreaking report titled Unfunded, Black Communities Overlooked by Canadian Philanthropy, which found that for every $100 of grant money dispensed by 15 of the leading foundations in Canada, only 30 cents, 30 cents, go to black community organizations. As a result of this reality, they're calling on the federal government to endow them with $200 million in seed funding for a black not-for-profit focused fund. Liban Abakor brings over 15 years of experience and leadership from his previous roles in public policy, healthcare, housing, philanthropy, and education. He served in advisory roles to various levels of government and industry partners who often seek his expertise on various issues, including education reform, social innovation, philanthropy, civic engagement, and youth involvement. His advisory roles include being an inaugural member of the Premier's Council on Youth Opportunities, which advised on the development of Ontario's Youth Action Plan, Youth Opportunities Fund, and Youth Employment Fund. Most recently, he was also a member of Minister Bill Blair's Roundtable on Reducing Violent Crime. Lieben is also a committed and passionate volunteer, having previously held roles as board director and chair of the granting committee at the Laidloff Foundation, vice chair of the board at the Central Neighborhood House, and board director at the Catherine Donnelly Foundation. He is currently a board member at Shoot for Peace, a Regent Park-based organization that lets youth tell their stories and express themselves through photography. And Jacka Blayamar is the Director of Grants and Racial Equity Strategy with Calgary Foundation. In this new role, Jacka will guide the Calgary Foundation through an ongoing journey towards a racial equity culture. Congratulations on that new role, by the way. Thank you. She also works collaboratively with the grants team to deliver a broad range of grant-making activities and fosters partnerships with community stakeholders and other funders and assists organizations through capacity-building advice. Before joining Calgary Foundation, Jacka worked for several years with the federal government, where she administered a variety of funding programs, including the Official Languages Program, Multiculturalism Program, and Settlement Programs. In addition to being a founding member of the Foundation for Black Communities, Jacka is a fellow with Justice Funders Harmony Initiative. She was born on unceded Indigenous lands on the island of Tiotica, or Montreal, and now lives, works, and plays in Mokinsis, or Calgary, with her husband and two boys, and enjoys traveling with them whenever possible, although she can't do it right now. How are you both doing? Excellent. Doing great. Yes, great to be with you today. Did I pronounce uh, those two locations properly? Montreal is the unceded territory of uh, Jojage Nation. And then Calgary is also known as Mokinsis. Mokinsis. 
Okay. Yes, which is the elbow where the bow and the elbow river meet. Good to know. And thank you for that correction. So I'd like to set the stage for our audience so they clearly understand the current environment for Black not-for-profits. Tell us about the landscape. Happy to. First and foremost, thanks so much for having us, Curtis, and Patience. Uh, and you ask a great question. It really is the, the current landscape that has drawn our attention to the solution that we're proposing, which is the Foundation for Black Communities. As, as you know, everyone on this call is probably well aware of, the effects of systemic anti-Black racism play out in disproportionate experiences um, in critical areas such as whether it's education or healthcare outcomes, unemployment, access to housing or food, criminal justice, and, you know, so much more. And to, and to overcome and address these social inequities, resulting again from systemic anti-Black racism, our communities have always relied on the good works of Black organizations. And when I talk about organizations, I don't mean such and such incorporated by, you know, the province or with the federal government. I mean, groups of Black people coming together to overcome whatever barrier challenge that they face, right? So it could be small, volunteer-led, grassroots, or something more formal. And these organizations have delivered many, many important and vital services, especially right now in the context of the COVID across this country, right? We've seen these Black organizations step up and, you know, really help create a safety net for our Black communities that have often, you know, that have been experiencing these really decimated um um, structures, or, or again, our own safety nets that have been that have been decimated from the COVID nineteen pandemic. They've stepped up again to provide services like transportation and food banks. They delivered PPE. They help people fill out income supplement applications like CERB. They provided support to seniors who wanted who needed access to virtual health care. I don't know about you, but it was been incredibly difficult to get a physical this year, <laughs> right? And uh, and so much more. And so without these organizations like the ones that uh, that you're all familiar with based on where you grew up, the already devastating impact of COVID would have been honestly immeasurably worse, right? Mm-hmm. And so despite the, the important role these organizations have played during the recovery, um, sorry, mm-hmm. during our, the response to COVID, we actually know that they're going to be playing an even more important role during the actual recovery of our, of our country. And this challenge is, as important as these organizations are, they're actually struggling to survive. And that's, that's the almost, you know, the, the scary part of all of this, right? I'll share maybe just a, a few stats from some of the research to really share where these organizations are. In the report that you just referenced, the unfunded report, what we saw was the structural and systematic underinvestment in Black communities by Canadian philanthropy. Subsequent to that report, we did a, uh, another study nationally uh, where we surveyed Black-led, Black-serving organizations and asked them, what about the implications of that lack of funding? In other words, how does it impact them? Here's what we learned. They said um, two-thirds of the organizations that responded to our survey reported that they had less than six months of support remaining before they had to shut their doors or cease supports to our communities. Madness. So if I go back for a moment, right, and I talk about, you know, and remind you about how important they were to the response, how critical they will be to the recovery, and then you think about their inability to survive. Effectively, what we're talking about is a recipe for disaster. Yes. Our organization is going to be without those supports. Our community, sorry, are going to be uh, without those supports that are um, best placed to help us, you know, manage effectively the next stage of the post-pandemic world. And so the question is, why is this happening? 
Yeah, so so now we understand the landscape. So in response, you decided to call for an endowment fund to rectify this glaring funding gap. Why did you feel it was important to ask for funding in this way? What was your rationale? Yeah, so the Foundation for Black Communities will be the first ever national grant-making foundation that will directly invest in Black-led, Black-serving, and Black-focused nonprofits and charitable organizations. It'll use a community-based decision-making process that ensures communities can define and determine where the investments are made to support their own priorities. Uh, This approach recognizes the self-determination of Black people and their agency to lead in their own problem-solving and solution-making. And it's important to really take advantage of the current momentum, you know, that we've seen in terms of increased awareness of um, anti-Black systemic racism and to really build something long-term in terms of durable investment for Black communities across Canada that'll withstand the changing winds of public sentiment, philanthropic focus, or government priorities. This is important because history has shown that support for Black communities is often sporadic, unreliable, and short-term, which contributes to the poor outcomes and further entrenches inequities and creates even greater disparities. So we want to create a philanthropic home for Black communities and Black-led organizations, one where they don't need to start their relationship with justifying the need for targeted investment in their community. And so the foundation will the work will fall in three areas. I, you know, I talked about grant making that's community driven and dedicated exclusively to black led and black serving charitable and nonprofit organizations. It will also be a collaborative partner to other foundations and government to create a stronger ecosystem of black focused funding. And then finally, you know, advancing public policy that benefits black people support for community and civic engagement. And in order to do that, we're seeking um, $300 million to seed the endowment to ensure that this support is available in the future. That's excellent. And, and I mean, I think I've said it from the jump already. It's amazing that this is being done. One of the first things I thought of when I first read about this in the star was, hmm, I, w- I wonder if this has been done elsewhere. Can you tell us if it's been done elsewhere in Canada or maybe elsewhere in the world and what the effects were? Yeah. So the answer, short answer is no. There are over 10,000 foundations in this country sitting on about $85 billion worth of assets who give out about $7 billion a year in grant making. Mm -hmm. None of that is directed uh, or designated for black communities. None of those organizations mandate or um, see the Black community as their key constituency. And so this is, in fact, the uh, first of its kind. Uh, So the Foundation for Black Communities is the first ever national grant-making foundation dedicated to supporting Black-led, Black-serving organizations that are helping our communities take meaningful actions to improve our prosperity, combat racism, and will help us build back better. Um, While while we're the first in, in, in this instance, there are other initiatives that are talking about how to draw philanthropic investment into our communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been connecting with uh, those around the globe, namely those in uh, just south of the border to, with us. And one of those groups that we've been talking to is Black Philanthropy Month uh, in the U.S., led by uh, Dr. Jacqueline Bovlin, mm-hmm. and um, who's been really doing incredible work talking about 
uh, how important it is to put resources in the hands of Black people and how those resources, once in our hands, can make significant impacts because we know where those investments should go, we know where those investments are needed, and we're the ones delivering on those uh, solutions directly. So it's it's incredible to um, to sort of see the the movements happening globally, but the Canadian context is so unique in many ways, right? Mm. Um, that we we weren't really looking for outside of Canada solutions. We were trying to build a we were trying to build a Canada solution first. So yeah, uh, we're we're we're, we're going to continue to look for other groups that are doing similar works and to uh, pick up on those lessons. But for now, it's really us trying to build a solution right here uh, in our backyards. Yeah, and that that's so like that, that's first of all, it's huge to to attempt to do this. So uh, thank you for for leading in this respect. Regardless of whether it's been done elsewhere, your call to action is already being really well received, and you've raised three point eight five million in seed funding from the philanthropy sector. Congratulations! Tell us more about how you did that. Well, it's it's really about. Um, Philanthropy is about relationships. And so, you know, our focus from the beginning of, of this has been about building relationships um, and, and, you know, starting off with sharing um, the information from the unfunded report where it, you know, it became really difficult for people to, to, to challenge what was in there because the numbers showed, you know, that there was a glaring gap. Um, so to date, our proposal has the support and endorsement from 25 of Canada's leading philanthropic foundations from across Canada, including Community Foundations of Canada, Vancouver Foundation, Calgary Foundation, uh, United Way of Greater Toronto, and um, uh, the Foundation of Greater Montreal, and, and many more. And they all see the Foundation for Black Communities as a critical and important new player within the Canada's charitable sector. One that would serve as an advisor, partner, and convener on the work to advance our collective priority of increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the sector, and to help build a stronger ecosystem of support for Black communities across Canada. So that's why, you know, InSpirit Foundation and Laidlaw Foundation, um, who made their announcement just recently for their support, have stepped up and demonstrated leadership in the philanthropic sector by donating to the Foundation for Black Communities. And in supporting the foundation, Laidlaw and InSpirit chose to share power, recognize the agency of Black people, and served a challenge to the outdated philanthropic orthodoxy fixated on accumulating capital, directing decisions, and creating dependency. So, you know, we're calling now on other foundations and companies and government to step up in the same way to help raise our goal of 300 million to be able to support community in a meaningful way. Yes, indeed. You just mentioned, you know, making change in a meaningful way. How do you see the fund changing the philanthropic sector in Canada over the next 10 years if it's fully funded? And how would the Black community be impacted. Give us the good news. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we see it in a couple of ways. And, and so I'll break it down in, in, in this way. We see an increase in investments going into Black communities from a more diverse pool of funders. You you hit a stat earlier, and that stat was for about every $100 currently given out by Canadian philanthropic sector. Uh, you said $0.30, cents, but I think that's quite generous. Really, the number is $0.07. Cents. Oh. As little as $0.07 cents actually goes into Black communities. 
Good Lord. So through a foundation for black communities, what are one of the key objectives is for us to help establish a robust, resilient funding ecosystem for black communities. The truth is we recognize no one actor, no one foundation is going to solve this critical resource issue. That's why we're looking to work closely with foundations from across Canada um, and government to ensure that they're also increasing support to black communities. Over the long term, we we suspect a sustained focused approach to funding will result in dramatic improvements in our community's overall well-being. Mm-hmm. It'll mean more communities will have dependable and sustainable supports, such as food banks, legal services, seniors programs, children's literacy programs, and skills development opportunities. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's going to mean in terms of actual change. The other significant part really is it's a psychological shift. And and that is the ability to, you know, um, increasing our capacity for self-determination. And, and I apologize if I get on a bit of a, uh, of, of, you know, um, a lecture here, but self-determination is so critical. You, you know, at its basic definition, it's the ability to make one's own choices and manage, our, manage their own life. Mm-hmm. And the psychology of self-determination matters too, especially to our community. You know, it provides us with a sense of control of our decisions. And by control, I'm talking about some means of affecting outcome instead of being merely a passive recipient of either circumstance or occurrence. So securing self-determination is really a fundamental pursuit, as I'm sure both of you are aware, of mm-hmm. all Black liberation efforts, whether it was unshackling ourselves from chattel slavery, fighting colonialism, or contemporary like economic imperialism. And so w- without the capacity to determine or direct our own futures, ho- we remain hopelessly dependent on other people or structures outside of our communities to provide the support we need. And if I may speak plainly, that's a foolish bargain, right? <laughs> it's um, and one that Black people for generations have really aimed to address. So self-determination manifests in many ways. Early on in this country, it meant occupying positions to offer our services, whether it was the first Black lawyer, the first Black doctor, the first Black you fill in the blank, right? Mm-hmm. Then we moved on to access to institutions to share and advance our interests. So that was the first Black elected official. But even when you've gained the skills to build a home or to pass legislation, there's one thing still missing from our community, and that's capital, money, right? That's the one thing that allows us to uh, purchase the things we need so that we can build what we want, right? And that's really what this Foundation for Black Communities is. It's the toolbox that's going to make sure that our communities, whether it's 2021, 2031, or 2041, always have tools in the toolbox and are no longer without, you know, uh, suffering from an empty cupboard. At some point, it's one thing to have investments going into your community. It's another to know that you're the one who can direct those investments to yourselves, right? That's how we're going to avoid those five, 10-year periods that we always experience where communities are put in blind spots. And then something has to happen, like, you know, uh, someone's death that somehow reminds folks that Black communities are are in a position of, of, of significant need. We want to end that. We want to end those valleys where where we don't have the support to do things on our own. So as I mentioned, it's not only going to create a strong and robust, funny ecosystem in this country for Black communities, we also want to increase our capacity for self-determination. And frankly, I think that's been the goal of every single Black uh, person in the, you know, and since we've been here in this country. So it's really a legacy and tradition that we're holding on to and whose, sh- whose shoulders we're standing on. Mm, I heard the ancestors speak through you, my brother. Honestly, like I, I'm just listening to everything that you're saying, and I'm like, I, I think, 
anybody who listens to what you're saying about self-determination and about, you know, making sure that, that we kind of sustain our own organizations, um, anybody can kind of see the need here. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since The Drip is a, is a political podcast, we're wondering, have you spoken to the political parties about your plan? And if so, how have they received it? Yeah, we've uh, spoken to uh, a number of MPs from various parties uh, to impress upon the importance of investing in community development and well-being of Black people. Um, we've, you know, so far we've received very warm reception, including Many um, MPs endorsing our proposal and expressing their support through letters sent directly to the Minister of Finance. Um, the support provided to Black communities by this foundation will withstand changes in government and government priorities. So it needs to receive multi-party support. Um, and so we've been working on that. And um just as importantly, though, we're, we are building relationships with Black-led and Black-serving, Black-focused organizations across Canada, since philanthropy is based on relationships. And, you know, one of the um, reasons for the gap in um, support that was going to, that is going to Black-led organizations is that lack of relationships between um, philanthropic organizations and community uh, and Black-led organizations so, you know, that's a key part of the work that this foundation will be doing. And as we look to build a stronger ecosystem of support for Black communities across Canada, we're also building relationships and getting support from the philanthropic sector. And, you know, ultimately, not one organization can address, you know, the complex um, problems um, and that are facing Black communities uh, alone. And that's why we need a stronger ecosystem. That means, you know, having... Um, self-agency and self-determination within Black communities and also increased support from um, existing philanthropic organizations for Black communities. And um, and we're, we see government playing a key role in that and also being a partner with this foundation as it moves forward to in building those relationships and in supporting community because it can't just be about kind of those... Um, kind of sporadic investments that we've seen um, that come and go based on priorities of government. It needs to be something that will be there for community um, regardless of, you know, changing winds in, in public opinion or, or, or what the priorities of the day are. So I hear the urgency. 
Are you considering making this an election issue, considering we may have one as early as April, if not the fall? Yeah, absolutely. You said the drip is political. Our work is political, right? At the Uh end of the day, politics is, you know, when you reduce it, in many ways, it's a set of activities around the distribution of resources, right? Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about is ensuring that Black communities get their proportional share of those resources. Resources that we contribute to, by the way. I want to be abundantly clear. And I also want to be abundantly clear that the Foundation for Black Communities is not asking or seeking handouts. What we're asking for is the redistribution of Black tax dollars into the hands of Black people so that we can begin to distribute those dollars in ways that are beneficial to us, right? So I just want to be abundantly clear. It's a, it's a mindset change, right? Most folks approach this work and say, oh, you're asking government for something. Now, what we're doing is we're requesting to work with government around the distribution of tax dollars that Black Canadians uh, contribute to this country. I think that's really important for us to to uh, to distill. And so um, what we're doing, especially as my colleague Jack had mentioned, we're speaking to you know MPs and officials from every party to ensure that, hey, look, we'd love to see this be done now. I think the the moment that we're in, if we do end up Googling to an election, it's something that each party should be ready and prepared to deliver on should they uh, be in the seat of government. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's the answer to that question uh, more directly. Um, I would add just one last, <clears throat> one quick thing, and I would say that, you know, as we think about this Foundation for Black Communities and what it means, uh, I really do want to stress that, you know, if there's anyone who in government who's listening, this isn't one of those moments in that you can pick the one black project. The need is so great across our community that we need to see a robust, comprehensive investment in black communities. And we're talking about only one area of investment, which is community development. We need so many more in healthcare and in economic development and so many other places. So I don't want this to become that ask, which is seen as an opposition to other asks. Mm-hmm. What we really see this is complementary to the work that others are also proposing. And I think that's really important to do because for our community, for some reason, anytime we put in separate asks, those asks immediately get put into competition with one another. Mm-hmm. And we end up having you know only one project funded. That's not something we can withstand, especially as we get, uh, I think as we get exposed to what, we, what we've been calling the true climate of COVID, you know, patience and Curtis, you know, you're both well aware that even though this experience of COVID has been bad for black communities, it could have actually been much worse without mm-hmm. CERB, without um, moratoriums on, um, on evictions, without mortgage relief programs, without, mm-hmm. uh, without employers getting uh, subsidies for wages or rent subsidies for their businesses. Yeah you know, the experience could have been and probably will be much worse, especially as those as those programs I just referred to beget to be clawed back, mm-hmm. right? So once CERB is fully uh, retracted, once job, wage subsidies are no longer being offered, eviction moratoriums on, in province of Ontario are removed. That's when we're really going to be exposed as a community to the true climate of COVID. And COVID in many ways is exactly like an earthquake, right? Mm-hmm. It's that first hit is, you know, we think is really, really bad, but it's really that those aftershocks that take the bend that get the benefit of those compromised structures that they can easily knock over. That's what we're worried about, right? And we need to make sure that our communities are prepared to withstand those aftershocks of this pandemic, which can which will probably, based on many, many different predictive models, be around for the next five, 10, 15 years. So 
we want to be mindful of that. And so that's why it's so important to have a strong structural support like the Foundation for Black Communities and others in place so that we can withstand what is intended to, you know, what is probably going to be a very chilly uh, future. Um, and so I, 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 I don't want to be doom and gloom. I just want to really draw attention to why this is urgent. This isn't a nice idea. This is a critical idea that's long overdue. Right, right. I love what you said about, um, you know, there are lots of asks on the table right now from folks uh, kind of all over the the, the kind of spectrum when it comes to uh, needs. And operating from that scarcity mindset, I I totally agree with you, is uh, how we've been operating until now and you know picking the one black thing that you do mm-hmm. uh just isn't isn't enough well um jaka liban thank you so much for the work that you're doing to ensure that black canadian not-for-profits receive their share of due funding we and we're sure every one of our listeners hope that you are successful and of course please let us know how we can assist your efforts in the future For the audience, you can find more on the Foundation for Black Communities at forblackcommunities.org. Oh, please follow our socials at F-D-N-B-L-K-C-O-M-M. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's where all of our information is. And that's where you can get the most uh, up-to-date stuff on the foundation as well. Thank you. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation with you. So you were you were letting us know uh, earlier you had a a big announcement on the way. Tell us more about that. So so we're actually really happy to share that. Um, in addition to the three point eight five million dollars that we received from Laidlaw and um, the Inspired Foundation, we actually have a really great partnership with uh, the MLSC Foundation. Ah. Uh, so they're going to be donating one million dollars for us to be able to invest in wow. programs supporting Black youth across Ontario. You know, what we've seen over the last uh, year with the pandemic is prolonged physical distancing and social isolation and loneliness. Mm-hmm. And so many of the um, many of the skills and sort of, you know, the important um, mental, social, and physical well-being uh, traits that um, the young people would be picking up, they haven't had the chance to pick up. So the $1 million that we've just received from the MLSC Foundation it's going to allow us to, you know, take provide significant opportunities and meaningful opportunities to young people across communities in Ontario, uh, with those, uh, um, with the chance to to get active, to get fit, to play, and also to build those really important skills like teamwork, communication, leadership, and problem solving. We're really excited to be able to address this uh, this issue because, you know, mental health is a really, really, really critical problem, and oftentimes that mental health can stem from the the social isolation and the distancing that uh, that the prolonged uh, lockdown uh, has has resulted impacted or contributed to rather. So, uh, really excited to share that. Uh, we're really proud to have a partnership with MLSC. You know, I think they're uh, they understand the issue of um, not only funding the Black communities, but making sure that you're actually providing those funds directly to Black communities so they can make those investments where they are. Okay. It's that's it a stage for a new way of doing work through partnership. And it does. It's no longer that principal client relationship. So uh, we're really proud to be uh, to be working with them and and want to give them a huge shout out for, you know, for recognizing that uh, we need to set a new course, you know, try a new course of investing in community. So big up uh, MLSC, really proud to be partnering with them. And we can't wait to see how uh, these investments are going to impact 
hundreds and hundreds of Black youth across this province. Yes, and we're really happy that they're engaging in trust-based philanthropy, you know, that that looks to transfer resources within the hands of the communities that are most impacted to make the decisions. So that's what we're um, most excited about and um, looking forward to working with them and looking forward to, you know, funding actually coming out um, to those communities in the fall. Someone asked us one time, like, you know, what is trust-based philanthropy? Trust-based philanthropy is, is, is pretty simple, you know, and, and I could share it sort of in the form of a story. So there's a, there's a group of the students who are completing this co-op program and they're from Canada and they fly off to Kenya. And when they land in Kenya, the village is staying in is a few hours outside of Nairobi. And, you know, they stay there with that community for about three months and they're quickly getting to like the last few days of their, um, their visit. And the community has been like great for them. They feed them, they clothe them, they, they live among um, the folks and, and, and they, and they're like, yo, we really want to be able to offer some kind of token of appreciation for the generosity we received. So the students come together and say, yo, what can we do? They go, okay, yo, remember every morning we see the, you know, women get up at like four in the morning, walk 10 miles to go get water. They're like, yeah. They go, what if we built a water well right here so that they didn't have to go do that three, four hour walk? And they're like, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. So a couple of, and then over the next couple of days, they get an engineer, they build this beautiful, beautiful well for the uh, for the community. And then they, you know, the students all get on the plane, say goodbye, and come back to Canada. Six months passes by, the kids graduate from their program, and they say, Yo, you know what would be a really great graduation gift? We should go back to the community and thank them for the role they played in helping us finish our project and graduate. Students go, we love that idea. So back on the plane, back to Kenya get to the community, and they arrive at night. And uh, the one of the first things they notice is that the well is filled with garbage. Oh, God. Like, just, like, to the brim. The students are, you know, flabbergasted, right? They're like, what? And so one of them goes, no, we got to figure out what's going on. I, I And so the next morning, they wake up for breakfast. And, you know, the elders can see that these students are a little bit agitated, right? They go, hey, what's wrong? And one of the folks, you know, chokes his um that anxiety swallows the anxiety that he has and he steps up he goes look we don't want to be rude but you know we're a little bit confused we're students we didn't have a lot of money and the little bit that we had we gave to build this well and we come back and it's filled with garbage and then one of the elders stands up and says first and foremost we thank you for that 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 gift you provided mm-hmm. however um we would have preferred if you had spoken to us right wow. had you had you spoken to us you would have known that the three hours uh, that we walk to get water uh, isn't only to get water; it's actually uh, to give uh, to give ourselves a break. That's where they offer counseling for new mothers, where women the the women could have conversations about uh, you know their own lives, their own discussion. Because when they come back, the men will often go into the field or do their own work, and then it also meant that that time could be spent between the fathers and the children for bonding. And the the other woman goes, tell them the truth. We really use those three hours to get away from our husbands. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the 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 point the point really was that the the community had wisdom for its reasons for doing that walk. Right? They have reasons for why they do what they do. So instead of you coming in and deciding uh, what they need, speak to the community. Right? right? Trust them, or give them the resources themselves, and let them have decide make the decision on what they want to ultimately um, invest in. 
That's trust-based philanthropy. Hmm. The people know what they need, give them the resources, and allow them to make those determinations themselves. Sometimes the well is needed. Other times it's not, right? But the only folks who know whether that's true or not are those uh, who, you know, who, are, who are facing the circumstance. So, you know, I share that story to say that's trust-based philanthropy. You have the means, but uh, it's the folks who are experiencing the challenges who know what those solutions are often. So, you know, put, put, the, put the resources in their hands and see the magic happen. Yeah. Say a lot for the people in the back, though. Yeah. <laughs> excellent news. Um, you know, excellent story. Um, very happy to hear that momentum continues to build. You're now at 4.85 with MLSC's foundation. Did you, did you work with Marika Walsh over there? So we worked very closely with <clears throat> Marika's team. So shout out to, uh, shout out to Bridget Estrella. Shout out to Kendra Kerr. Shout out to the folks at MLSC uh, and their communications team and the board. Shout out to uh, Tani McRuck, um, the executive director there. Shout out to a lot of people. And, yeah. uh, and um, yeah, we're, we're proud. It's, it's the beginning of hopefully a really long relationship with, uh, with MLSC, but they're also setting the stage to other corporations, right? That, you know, if you want to work with the black community, working with us means, um, means making sure that you center our ability to direct the decision making as well. Right. It's uh, and and man, yeah, it's a great form of partnership. And uh, as my colleague said, it is it's the new wave. So thank you, Jaka and Liban, for that exclusive for the drip. Uh, we're really, really happy to be the the home of, you know, your biggest, bodice, freshest <laughs> announcements. Um, and yeah, we, we wish we wish that every foundation would would continue to to pour into um, the FFBC in, in the year to come. In the years to come. That's what's up. Yes. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 